You're either you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. Welcome aboard. It's episode 11 of Riding the Bus, the official Iowa Wild podcast presented by Explore Minnesota. I'm Ben Gislason. He's Joey Goldstein. This is episode 11. Here it we is. are. Yeah. Uh, we're across the into the double-digit threshold now. We had Allie Brown last week. This week, actually, it was funny. I should I should renege on that. I didn't even ask her. I knew she'd gotten married, yet I just went with Allie Brown. I didn't even think about it. I, I think she is Allie Brown Coronek, I believe yep. she's going by yep. now. So apologies. <laughs> shame on getting her name I'd say shame on incorrect. you, but that's a shame on us. That's a shame on us. We, shame we could on have us both then, come yeah. up with that. Um, so Allie Brown Coronek last week. This week, uh, Brett McLean, assistant coach of the Minnesota Wild and was an assistant coach uh, with the Iowa Wild here, predating his time in Minnesota. He's been there now coming up on three seasons. And really, when you talk to anybody that was here with him, I obviously talked to Joe O'Donnell a lot, who I know is very close with Brett. But Joe, we talked to any of the previous coaches that have been here. Um, everyone adores this guy. And this interview is a perfect example yeah. of why. Um, I mean, what a story his hockey career was and his coaching career still is. Definitely one of those cases of someone who overcame a lot of adversity and, and nothing away from the rink adversity, not one of those stories, but just continually being looked over, not being appreciated Having to for earn everything yes, that he's, yeah. Yes, and really gets into that. Um, and we, we, we really take a, a great journey through his career and learn more about what it is that makes him the person he is today. And it, it actually, it, it makes sense now why you, you, I've come to know him a little bit away from, from the rink too. And um, just a phenomenal human being, clearly a phenomenal hockey mind. And I think somebody, I was thinking about this in the middle of the interview when he was explaining how he's been in every player's shoes for the most part, yeah. or skates for the most part, minus that he brought up, he, he can't probably relate to Kirill Kaprizov sure. or Sidney Crosby yep. or these big superstars, but everybody else he can. And I, I just, it dinged in my head. I went, head coach. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a guy who, with that experience, could probably and maybe very well likely will make a fabulous NHL head coach someday. Yeah, and I, listen, all due respect to our previous 10 guests mm -hmm. thus far, Without question. This includes Bill Guerin, by yeah. the way, who we love. But we're, but yeah. we're, no, I agree with you. But, like, hands down, I think he's been the best guest we've had so far. Just we've had great conversations with everybody. Yes. And, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to slight anybody who's been on here before. Hopefully but Bill Guerin doesn't get mad It was it. just <laughs> one story after another. The way – and he, he doesn't know what the questions we're going to ask. No. But the way he was just seamlessly going, moving us from one thing to the next that went aligned with how we wanted to move the interview along. Like, it was awesome. There are some unreal stories. I mean, just right off the top talking about having to file for arbitration and how awkward yeah. that whole situation is like that. It's just, it's, it's a unique career and he's a, yeah, just a fantastic storyteller. We've, we're going to toot our own horns real quick. We've kind of knocked it out of the park with finding great storytellers uh, for all of our guests. Yes. Yeah, this is this has been my my favorite conversation so far for sure. And I didn't even I didn't even say much throughout the most of the interview. I, I, I kind of felt I felt bad. I was just I really pir yeah. I really pirated. The one thing that that bleeds very clear when you get through the first 40 minutes of this is boy, Ben is a super big hockey nerd and just really don't I, Yeah, this, I laughed but. a couple times. So like you heard me. I and I was there, you can see me. Uh, uh but yeah, I just uh, most of my questions were kind of tailored more to the end of his career and, and his time, mm -hmm. you know, in Des Moines and, and some family life questions and yours are more the 
hockey-related questions, which is totally fine. And when you, I told you right before we started recording, when you get into a situation like that with certain people, you know, when you get guys talking about their their hockey careers and and those stories, I could sit back and listen all day long and have no qualms about it. It was super engrossing and engaging. Those, I think, are the two best ways I would describe it. And in order for that to happen, you have to have a guest that is willing to buy in. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I noticed, too, sometimes, and this is true of some of our guests as well, and you, you're taught this in, in journalism school when you, when you go through it, is you do oftentimes need to throw a few softballs. You need to get them comfortable, try yep. to get them talking. You nailed it with arbitration right off the bat he was like i got a story right away bang and i'm like okay here we go when we're off Uh, there there was no there was no helping him into the podcast there was no getting him comfortable he was ready to jump right in both feet right away Mm -hmm. and i just thought it was riveting from start to finish yeah Uh, (laughs) we keep talking about if we want to i just i think we just give it to him give it to the people let's give it to the people assistant coach of the minnesota wild and nhl alum of over 385 games Brett McLean. Time for the second period, and we're joined by an extremely special guest here today, former Iowa Wild assistant coach, current Minnesota Wild assistant coach, and a longtime NHLer. Brett McLean is with us here today. Mac, looking forward to this chat. We've been furrowing back through our archives, checking in with a lot of our mutual acquaintances to try to get some dirt on you. Unfortunately, haven't found a whole lot. Your friends, your, your friends are keeping you very tight to the chest, but this is going to be great, and we're looking forward to talking with you today, Brett. Thanks for coming. Yeah, happy to be here, guys. And, uh, yeah, let's have some fun. So for starters, I want to get you reminiscing. We're, I want to start way back in British Columbia, but first and foremost, if your hockey career was being made into a book, what do you think the title would be, or what would you like the title to be? Uh Probably Journeyman would be the title I'd go with. Uh, a lot of people might take that as a disrespectful term, Journeyman, for a hockey player, but I take it as a point of pride, being that I uh, I look at it that I had to kind of earn every day of my career. And, yeah, I played a lot of places and played for a lot of teams, and I'm proud of every one of those spots I was at and uh, proud of all the different experiences that I was a- able to have and all the great people that I met. So uh, that'd be what, what I would go with. And actually, interesting sidebar on that is um, after my first year playing in Colorado for the Avalanche, I went to arbitration or was about to go to arbitration. And um, the way that process works is uh, both teams put a legal brief together and present that to the arbitrator the night before, and then they go in and argue their case that that next day. So we actually settled the night before on uh, on on a contract, but we had already been given the other team's brief. Uh, uh, Colorado had already given us their brief; we'd given them ours. And the front page, the cover sheet of of um, their brief had the definition of journeyman. That's what it had <laughs> on there. So. Um, so that's, that's why that, that name came to my mind. I, I've always wondered this about the arbitration process. Cause it's gotta be a little tricky because you go in on one side and you're saying, Hey, this is, I deserve this much. And this, these are all the reasons why, but like your employer then comes back and is like, yeah, well, these are the reasons why you don't deserve that much. So like, is that just a strange kind of concept to have to yeah. deal with that? Yeah. Very, 
it's a tense time. And especially myself, I'd only played two years in the NHL at the time and, and was not a, a star by any stretch. I'd had a very good season kind of overachieved that year. And, and I had very good comparables, but I didn't want to upset Colorado at all. So it was just one of those processes that was, it's kind of like you have to use the, the tools at your disposal to try to get a contract, especially in a, you know, a, a sport and in a job that your life is, is so short, right? Your, your the career is, is so short in, especially the national hockey league for players like myself. So you have to push to get a real good contract, but you don't want to make the other, uh, the other side. Nobody wants to offend either upset. side. So, yeah. So that's why it was, uh, if we had a win, and by the time you get to the end of the process, you kind of know what you're going to get because everything goes by comparables when you're a restricted free agent. So I had very good comparables and, 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 and so I, I knew I would get a little bit more in if we had a, actually went into the room and argued our, our sides, but I accepted their offer the night before. I was very lucky that I had great representation that said, take this offer because it's not worth getting the extra money and aggravating the other side. And you don't want to hear what they have to say, to be quite honest, the <laughs> process is pretty brutal when you get in that room um, because it's just, it's not the general manager or assistant general manager arguing it on their side. It is simply a lawyer that they've hired and he is, he is just going to cut you down. <laughs> and, uh, so it, um, it was an interesting process, but I'm very happy how it worked out and, and, ended up having another very good season with Colorado the next year and have a great or had a great relationship with with management there. Well and to your point, arbitration after just two years in the NHL, oftentimes you hear arbitration happening with players that maybe have a little more of, of a of a tenure behind them. So that had to be really nip and tuck in that negotiation. And obviously we're all happy to hear that it went the right way, not the wrong way. Yeah. And that's yeah. here you are now. I, I want to turn the clocks back long before you had any idea what arbitration was to, to Comox, British Columbia, uh, growing up on Vancouver Island. Paint the picture. I, I, you ask different players that have reached the levels that you've reached as the pinnacle of our sport in the National Hockey League, and everyone has different beginnings. Everyone has some similar beginnings. What was the picture like of Brett McLean growing up on Vancouver Island, dreaming of doing what yeah. you did and what you are doing now? Yeah, well, I can't imagine a, a better place to grow up, to be honest, than where I grew up in. Uh, Royston is the little village, but Comox Valley is the the area that uh, I grew up in and it's, it's the sign when you drive into town is the recreation capital of Canada and meaning that you can do everything there and, and you can from the ski hill 30 minutes away. It's arguably the best salmon fishing in the entire world. Every type of sport you can imagine, you know, mountain biking, every outdoor activity. It's a, it's an amazing place. You know, I grew up about 150 yards from the ocean, like just, just a, a, a wonderful place to, to grow up and, and um, really, really calm pace to, to living there. And, and so I had two older brothers and, and uh, obviously my parents and my parents still live in the house that we grew up in. And so I was being the youngest brother was always trying to, to keep up with Sean and Kevin. And um, we had a kind of an old school ca uh, carport. You know, not a basically a garage, but didn't have the didn't have the front or back door actually. So we would, uh, and our deck was above it. So we would play road hockey in there, just 
like just for hours with the buddies from the uh, neighborhood and just uh, so at, at the one the one side of the carport was the chimney there was the bottom of, of the outside of the chimney and on the other side there was a lip that there was more pavements um, that wasn't covered by the carport so always remember the rules with slap shots. You could go in the one way, you couldn't take a, you had to take a slap shot behind the chimney. And when you're shooting the other way, you had to take a slap shot behind the lip. So that was always the arguments and stuff. So, um, you know, we had a half acre yard. And, and so every sport you can imagine was played on that. My dad even made like cut out a little golf hole so we could play golf, like just everything, just with my brothers and my buddies, just playing every single sport. And, and, um, and that's one thing that I am very thankful for, that I played basketball, did a lot of track and field um, in school, played every sport, soccer, volleyball, all that with all my friends. And, and so really got exposed to, to different sports. Obviously, hockey was, was a, a huge part of it. But um, on Vancouver Island, hockey's big like it is everywhere in Canada, but not as big as it is in some other places because there's so many other activities to do and so many other sports that people can do. So again, hockey was big. Um, but I also in the winter played basketball. So I'd have to miss hockey games sometimes, huh. things like that, but really thankful that my parents, you know, we prioritized being a uh, multi-sport family, not just specializing in one sport, but, um, then, uh, when I got 10, 11, 12, started to kind of separate myself in, in, in hockey, even though that's obviously a very young age. And then uh, I, back then, there wasn't hockey on TV all the time, right? So this is, we're talking 30, 35 years ago. So Saturday night was big, right? Saturday night yep. was big. Hockey in Canada, of course, like the Canucks games, which are obviously the big team there. They Their games were almost never on TV. We'd listen to them on the, radio sometimes they'd be the late game but usually the late game was whoever the Oilers were playing right um so obviously watched a lot of that growing up but one thing that I remember always being on TV was the the Bantam um national championship I believe it was called the Pure Leader Cup back then and the what used to be called midget I think it used to be called now I think it's called under 18 um the Air Canada Cup their national championship I believe that's what it was called back then and there's a team called Notre Dame always in it. And now this is not Notre Dame, the university, obviously. This is a, a private school that was in Wilcox, Saskatchewan, still is in Wilcox, Saskatchewan. And people would come from all over to, to play at that school and go to school, a very high level of education. They, had, they always seemed to be in the Canadian Championship game for those two tournaments. And that was some of the, the games that were on TV. And... Uh, a player and a person that my family had watched grow up was from Campbell River, which is 30 minutes from where we're from. Rod Brindamore actually went to Notre Dame. So we had a little connection there. So long story long, I always wanted to go to Notre Dame because it was just this mythical place, this amazing Rod Brindamore had gone there. And so uh, when I was 14, uh, two weeks after my 14th birthday, I went for grade nine to Notre Dame to kind of start to pursue my dreams of of, of hockey. And uh, 
real good story connected to that was think about how different the world was back then. Yeah. So my brother, my brother, uh, Sean, oldest brother, he was going to university in uh, McGill in Montreal. So for the first time, I was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane, two weeks after my 14th birthday, uh, Sean and I, we get on our plane in Comox, we fly to Vancouver, then we fly to Calgary, then we fly and stop in Regina, Notre Dame is in Wilcox, it's about 45 minute drive south. So we flew to Regina, stayed at the Travel Lodge Hotel, still remember it, went to the keg for dinner. To anybody who's uh, been to the keg in Canada yep. knows, great steakhouse, good, that's uh, it institution up north the keg steakhouse then the next morning he put me in a cab i'd never been there didn't know anyone put me in a taxi cab with some money he flew on to montreal i went in a cab 14 years old to wilcox had my hockey bag over one shoulder and had uh my uh, some books you know my binders stuff like that and my clothes bag over the other shoulder and my hockey sticks and the cab dropped me off in the middle of of the campus in front of the hockey rink in Wilcox, Saskatchewan. I didn't know where registration <laughs> was anything. I walked to the rink. I ran into the team's uh, equipment manager of the, the uh, junior team there, and I asked him, and he pointed me in the right direction. So I have a 15-year-old daughter now, and I couldn't imagine doing that um, with her at, at this stage. But uh, it was a different time, and I'm very thankful for that, that my parents trusted me to do that and, and paid for that because it was very – expensive and and that kind of um led me i guess on my path to where i am today that might be the opening that might be the prologue to the uh, the journeyman if you ever yeah. write that that there might be the prologue that's right there good. i mean that's yeah. what a yeah. tale uh you're mm -hmm. a stupendous podcast guest because i wanted to talk about notre dame because I'm just watching him you got we got all the questions right next to your <laughs> okay. face on the screen here and you've yeah. uh, you're you taking us right, right it. through it's great i love <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> and it's nice when we can save questions on our end it's a yeah. lot better of a podcast when we hear more about you and not as much from us so thanks yeah. for getting us there i, I wanted to talk yeah. about notre dame because I think mythical is a great way to describe it, and especially for American hockey people, you have to sort of stumble upon it or really do your homework to know about Notre Dame. But, I mean, it is, it's a factory. I think people have compared it to Shattuck, and it might even be a little more legendary than Shattuck in some ways. Certainly in Canada it is. But, I mean, names like you brought up Rod Brindamore, Wendell Clark, Curtis Joseph, Vinny LeCavalier, Brad Richards. You got John Cooper went there. Barry Trotz went there. I mean, the list goes on and on. When you got there and when you left, how do you think you changed from walking on there with your bag over your shoulder and <laughs> talking to the equipment manager to the Brett McLean that went on to play in the WHL from there? Yeah, it's so many ways. It's um, in why I tell that story that I just did is because it, it shaped me now to, to this day, no question. Just being able to move so much, uh, being independent, I think being confident, being able to go into a, a situation or into a room where you don't know people and being able to adapt and have confidence. And so it is a massive part of my growth as a, as a young man. And now going into a middle-aged man, it, it certainly um, played a, a huge role. So just to go back, you compared it to, to Shattuck. And I think for American hockey fans, it's a really good place to start because uh, and the way I say it is Notre Dame was Shattuck before Shattuck. So it was kind of, it was there. It's been there for a long time. And, and I'm sure, I believe it was J.P. Parise that was very influential mm -hmm. in starting Shattuck. I'm sure he, he, he borrowed a lot and used quite a bit of what 
they use in in Wilcox. And um, really, uh, now there's so many places like this, uh, academies, they call them in Canada. I think there's over 30 now, but there was only one back then. It was the only one of its kind. And and you had to apply and you had to write letters and it was it was a and it really was a school of hard knocks it was it's as flat as they come there um <laughs> no exaggeration the closest town away is 10 miles away it's called Rollo, and you have to do as part of your physical education class there you have to do the Rollo run at the end of the year and it is you the bus takes you to roll drops you off and you have to run back to wilcox and it is 10 miles perfectly straight perfectly flat and so this is the type of place it is you go there and and there's a mix of students there as well there's i believe it was 400 students were there when, when i was at notre dame 300 of them of them were there for academics or athletics 100 of them were there more they might have had some trouble in their past so you get a really mix of of kids there and and a lot of it a lot of the the discipline a lot of the rules are enforced by the student body so of course you have the leadership but yeah there's uh four different dorms i believe when we were when i was there and each dorm had a couple leaders and they kind of enforced the rules. So it was very much an old school way of doing things. Very Spartan set up. Um, it was four to a room, two, two bunk beds. You've got a little locker for yourself. And, and so you, you really had to learn to take care of yourself and really had to mature at a very young age. And, but then of course the, the athletics is specifically the hockey is very, very high. So they had five Bantam teams and seven, under 18 teams when when I was there um, for the boys and then for the girls I think they had two of each um, not sure exactly on that very competitive to make the top team so I was lucky enough to to make the top team the AAA team my first year uh, Bantam when I was there and so that obviously helped to adjust um, but uh, the lessons I learned are just invaluable here moving forward I can remember the first the first two months I was there, I called my parents every night with an old calling card. They gave me a, a calling card and we had a pay phone in our dorm, you know, no cell phone or anything like that. So use the calling card and I would cry every night asking them if I could come home. I was so, so homesick. And they said, sorry, it's all, it's already bought and paid for. You're not coming home. See you at Christmas. So uh, I can imagine now as a parent, how difficult that would have been on my parents to hear me crying. And it wasn't, everything was going fine there. It was just, you miss home, right? You miss, mm-hmm. miss the comforts of, of home. And, and you just, you had to earn everything when you were there. It was very, very competitive, but you also, the bonds I formed with, with people there were just going to last, last for my entire life and still talk to those people quite a bit that I went to Notre Dame with. And, and on, and then the last part I add is the education is very good there. My parents are both teachers. So as that was a big part of it, I had to keep really good grades and you have to there. Like there was no, if your grades weren't at a certain level, you couldn't play sports. So when I went to then the WHL at 16, I was so much further ahead of the other 16, 17 year old rookies in the Western Hockey League, just from a maturity standpoint, Mm -hmm. because I'd already lived away from home for two months. And so then when I got down to Tacoma, Washington, 
and I got to go to this beautiful billet's house. And they were making us food every every couple hours. I, I thought this was great. This was the best thing on earth because I've been living, like I said, this Spartan existence, um, sharing a room with three other uh, boys my own age. So um, that's where it really kind of set me up for success as I moved into junior hockey was because I'd already been through the homesick part. I'd already been through all of that. And I was much more prepared for uh, the rigors of uh, the Western Hockey League. Oh, he's walked us into the WHL again. But before <laughs> before we get there, I have to ask, you, you find finding numbers for AAA games in the 90s is difficult, but I found a number, and I want to know if you can corroborate this. 233 points in 71 AAA games at Notre Dame. Is that true? I, I don't, obviously, I didn't count every Yeah, I didn't them, think but that, but does that I seem like say, a reasonable number? Because that's that ridiculous. It, it, that's I would lot. say that it probably is for oh, a couple of reasons. Gosh. One, at Notre Dame, they actually do keep the stats properly. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of times they don't. People like, there they did, and we had a team manager that actually did keep and tabulate those. The other reason was our team was incredible that year. Absolutely incredible. Um it was, we had almost every player on the team went on to get a NCAA scholarship or play in the Western Hockey League. Wow. It was just our team winning. We only lost three games all season. Um, and only, we only lost one game to a team our own age. We actually got kicked out of our league because we were beating everybody by too much. And we just had to tour around and go to tournaments. And so um, the, that would be the other reason was because we did have a lot of lopsided scores. And I wasn't the only one on that team with those type sure. of stats. There's quite a few of us. So we were, uh, we were, uh, it was a pretty fun season for, our, for our group. That's for sure. God, I was looking at that and I, again, yeah. doing my really simple, dumb math. I'm like sitting here, you know, yeah. doing the numbers. I'm like, it's like three, four points yeah, a it's, game. It's a lot of, yeah. points. it's just for, I had, I had to ask. Cause you never, again, yeah. you never know when you get online yeah. and some of those older yeah. stats for younger players, yeah. but so thanks for corroborating yeah. that. Uh, the yeah. WHL, uh, you broke in with Tacoma, the Rockets. They, of course, became the Kelowna Rockets. Sensational five seasons there, specifically 96-97. You're in the top ten in scoring in the WHL. And it was 104 points, correct? I mean, just a, a ridiculously yeah. good season. What went right that year for you? Because you mentioned walking in and, and having – the away from home time that had made you more ready for the opening season. That was not your opening season. That was maybe two, yeah. three years into your WHL career. What went right yeah. that year for Brett McLean? Well, a lot. And, and it's so interesting how individuals always tied to team. Like it was, sure. it was, I, that year I actually didn't have a great first half of the season. And um, I know I remember I was very disappointed in the first half of, of the season. And I think our team was as well. I remember we made a big trade and we, we it was like a nine player trade. I think we got four players. We sent five players out and, and we just brought in a, a couple of real good veterans. And, and then uh, I, I, maybe that took, cause I become one of the leaders that year. Maybe that took some pressure off of me to just go out and play and, and just uh, had a couple of great line mates, uh, Jason Delerm, who had an incredible, still a real good friend of mine today. He lives in Kelowna and was from Kelowna. So he obviously is a, legend there so he was on the right side and, and scott king um was actually dave king uh legendary coach he it was his son so he was the centerman and then i i played on i actually played left wing 
that that second half of the season and we just we just took off and uh and just had a great finish and so did our team and um so that really helped i think it was as as a young man as a teenager right you learning leadership is such a hard thing right you just i think that was a big part of it is i become a leader on the team and i maybe wasn't ready for it and, and was putting too much pressure on myself and then uh, I think that trade and getting those veterans in just really kind of helped me to just go and play and had a great, really solid finish to the season. You also came across in your time with the Rockets, a lanky defenseman by the name of Nolan Yonkman. Uh, oh. This is going to maybe be the hardest question that we asked you all podcast recording long. Do you have a favorite Nolan Yonkman story that you would be willing to share with our podcast listeners? Of course, for those that aren't aware, the assistant coach coming into his second season now of the Iowa Wild. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess there's a few. I get a few yeah. on Yonks, but uh, <laughs> a real good one, I think, is uh, so on, on those teams, we had some great characters. You know, obviously, Yonks, you mentioned Vern Fiddler. It's another one you know, of my favorite hockey names ever, here. Vernon Fiddler. One of my favorite Vernon hockey Fiddler. names. Yeah, we uh, we were actually in junior. He didn't like his first name, so we we started calling him Vinny. He wanted to be called Vinny, so that's what we called him all the time. But he went back to uh, Vernon. But he uh, his parents uh, would come for the summers to Kelowna right before training camp, and he they'd bring a boat. So we'd go out on beautiful Lake Okanagan on this boat, and. and and just to paint a picture of, of Nolan, um, he's very good with his money. Like he really takes care of his money. I'll just leave it at that. So we go on the boat and we're wakeboarding. We were wakeboarding at the time. We're wakeboarding a little bit. I'm going, with Nolan, he wanted to do kneeboard, which I don't know. I didn't even know that was a thing. So he kneeboarded behind that boat for a long time. Like we'd take, you know, a five, seven minute wakeboard. He was we're dragging him and you can't knock him off. Right. So he were dragging him around the lake for, or Fids is, is pulling him around there for half hour. I don't know what it is, but we're <laughs> out there all day. We have a great day. And Yonks takes another rip. He goes out again and you know, he goes a couple times and like, that's burning gas. Right. Like, so then we go to fill it up at the end of the end of the day. We didn't have a lot of money. Like nobody had a lot of money back then. Right. Not that we have much now, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, we're all throwing in like 20s and stuff, and he goes into his wallet. We see him, he's got like 20, 20, 20, gives a five to the officer <laughs> his side. Or two kids. We're like, come on, like, you can drag you around all day, and you pull out a five, and like, oh, it was. Uh, that's a real good young story. Thanks for sharing that. It's funny. He was one of the people I, of course, went to to try to get some dirt on you. He, he wouldn't share anything. So I'm glad that you carved him one there because now he'll be upset with himself that he that maybe he didn't, didn't try to throw a, a grenade yeah. back over well, the bow there. I'm sure we'll get another one at some point. <laughs> when I said... When I said that, you know, we don't have much money now, I think Yonks is the one that probably does have players because he is smart with his money. He's the one he's the one hockey player I know that is real smart with his money. So uh, it's a dig, but it's also a bit of a compliment. Sure. He did tell me uh, that I should ask about Rusty's Bar and Grill. Yeah. Yeah, Rusty. So that's where we uh, – it was myself, him, and Kevin Coral, And then um, – a couple of years later, Bart Rushmer, another friend of us that came and lived with us. And we had uh, just, it was, it was uh, my house that we had in uh, Kelowna. And we just, we named it Rusty. I don't know. We just, we named it Rusty's Bar and Grill. And um, we'd always think about us is that, yeah, we, we had our fun um, as, as um, 
people in their early 20s do, right? We ha- had our fun, but we always got up and worked and got our got our workouts in. And um, and we were very strict with our rules. We would have, we would we had our workouts Monday to Saturday. We take Sunday off, but we'd only you know have our fun at night on mm-hmm. Thursday night, Saturday night. Like we were we were very strict with that. And then in August, we would almost completely like shut it down and get ourselves ready for training camp. But we had uh, lots of great memories, lots of, lots of fun with those guys. And um, very, our, our crew is very, very close to, to this day. And I think where it started though, Rusty's Bar and Grill was that the, I wasn't actually, I'd already um, graduated out from the Rockets, but uh, when they built the new arena there in Kelowna, they have the the way it's set up for the Rockets locker room is the bottom level is the locker room, training tables, things like that, showers. The top level is all the gym. And there's just one door to get into the gym. So apparently what they do before games when they do like their before their team stretch and stuff like that is they crank the music up in the gym. And Nolan, he's a huge human, yes. grows every time I see him, right? Six, 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 seven. <laughs> apparently he would get like an earpiece put in his ear and he would stand at the door and pretend to be a bouncer and they'd have the music cranked up and they'd call it Russ. So they'd have like a lineup outside the door and he'd let like the guys into the gym. So I, I believe you have to corroborate with him. I believe that's where the name Rusty's Bar and Grill actually came from. That's unreal. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I can absolutely see him doing that yeah. without a doubt. Uh, and it's funny, play. you gave us a play-by-play there of exactly what, what Yonk said about Rusty's Bar and Grill being, you guys had fun, but he's like, you shut it down in August, you shut it down in September. You, he said almost verbatim what you said about that, yeah. which obviously mm-hmm. plays into why you guys went on to have very successful careers mm-hmm. yeah, post, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, to finish with Kelowna, uh, you're someone there that when you look at some of the list of alumni, Leon Dreisaitl, Duncan Keith, Shea Weber, uh, Jamie Ben, you maybe don't have quite the mantle that they have behind them in their playing careers, but... I was looking into it more about the legacy you had in that place, and it's a pretty big legacy, Brett. And you'll you won't agree to this because you're a humble guy, but you were put on, I, I believe, an all-time lineup there with these other players. I mean, Brett, Alex Edler's on that list, Jamie Ben's on that list, you're on that list. You're a very memor you're a very memorable player for that fan base up there. To leave a place that you spent so much time. And to look back and know that you are valued the way that you are there, it has to hold a special place in your heart, I'd imagine. No, no, no question. Very proud that I was an AMA pulling a rocket and proud of uh, Tacoma too. But no, it's obviously we, my family and my wife's from Kelowna too. So a lot of connections there. The Hamilton family has been unbelievable to us over the years. And, and um, yeah, no, it, it means a great deal to me. And again, I've mentioned my, my kids a couple of times already. Mm-hmm. When you start to get to middle age, you think about legacy and things like that. And it is kind of, kind of nice to have something like that, that, that uh, to be a part of. And um, they've done a great job with the Rockets of, of making sure the alumni is very close and we are very close. And, and, um, and so it, it is very, <laughs> very fun and, and and it's nice to to just be a part of such a great franchise because they've just done such a good job of not only building hockey players but quality quality people and and they do put a huge priority on that so um yeah just again very thankful for that so another just leads me to a, a story just 
from, from your question. To our daughter that I mentioned that's 15, uh, this was probably, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. And so we were, I was still playing in, in Europe. And when we'd come back from Europe, it would usually be early April, around there, mid, mid-April. And the Rockets would still be in, in playoffs. So we'd always go to the Rockets games. Again, they treat us very well. The alumni would get us tickets and it, it was great. And so after the, after the one game, uh, you know, we left the, the new building uh, or newer building, uh, Prospera Place, I believe it's called now, where the Rockets play. And we were driving home and we drove by Memorial Arena, which is where I played for the Rockets. Much smaller venue. It's an old, one of those old buildings. It was probably built like in the 1950s. Um, the Queen is still hanging at, at, at the one end. Like it's it's an amazing building, like just beautiful old, old uh, building. If you're a hockey guy, like yeah, obviously see this. we are. And so we drive the one, we drive past the other and my wife says to Darian, our daughter, she's like, Darian, that's where daddy played when he played for the Rockets. She breaks out laughing, like dying. <laughs> she's like, daddy never played for the Rockets. Like, Darian had been with us, like when I was played in the NHL. She'd been with me when I played in the Spangler Cup. She'd been with us in Europe where we played in front of big crowds. But like, no way I was good enough to play for the Rockets. Like, they were, they're up here. Daddy's not even close to that. Well, we always give her a give her a hard time about that. Well, she is the most responsible McLean, correct? Exactly. That's what the uh, radio Joe O'Donnell says <laughs> that she's the most responsible McLean. So, there's probably some truth in that. You're drafted yeah. uh, actually the the year or the the spring after your your great WHL season. You go, I think it was six to last in the draft. Back when it was nine rounds, there aren't even nine rounds anymore, and I'm not trying to dig you. Obviously, yeah. you had the career that you had, but it's always interesting. I, I love asking this question to guys that like yourself that did have very, very great WHL, OHL careers, yet for some reason they wind up going late or not even going in the draft. What what was the rub with you? Do you know what the rub was? Do you know why you maybe weren't yeah. going to be going earlier? And, and what was that day like for you being someone who had really had a lot of success in a league that does promote to the NHL, obviously, very yeah. frequently, and then wind yeah. up being a late pick like that? Yeah, well, I, I'd already been passed over the year before in the draft. So it was actually my second year of eligibility in, in the draft. And, and so, um, yeah, there was a lot of disappointment that that first year, and then when I did get drafted, I was just ecstatic that I mm-hmm. that somebody actually called my name. I didn't care when. And and um, uh, as far as the rub on me, I, I it was it was a different time back then. In that you know, if you watch those games back at that time, like it was it was size was a premium, and I, I certainly didn't uh, not not a big man. I wasn't big back then so uh that was part of it and i was i was never the fastest player either i worked on my skating a ton um i was good in small areas but i was not the fastest player so not a great combination back then for your draft status is not being that big and not being that fast and um and and even though that i did have success in in the western hockey league so i think that probably was was a a a factor in it um um, as far as I know, but, um, again, those, 
those times getting passed over and those those moments are what I thankful for those now because those taught me perseverance and taught me and then when I did make it to pro hockey into the NHL I took everything day by day because I'd had to work so hard to get there and um, so again I'm, I'm very thankful for for those times but uh, yeah it was it was a great day for me when I got drafted by by, by Dallas. I was very, very happy uh, at that time. More learning moments came from the, the following, I want to say, let's see, four years, 98 to 2002. Walk me through that time. You've got, you finished yeah. with the Brandon Wheat Kings after yeah. uh, I'm imagining a deadline day trade yeah. to go to the playoffs yeah. in the WHL. Yeah. Then you go Cincinnati in the AHL. Yeah. Johnstown in the ECHL and St. John in the AHL, Cleveland yeah. in the IHL, and then you finish with the Houston Arrows in the AHL before yeah. eventually going up and, and making your debut yeah. the following season with the Chicago Blackhawks. But, I mean, again, let's go back to the journeyman line. I mean, your yeah. suitcases almost had to be packed in perpetuity yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. And, and just uh, very lucky that I had a great agent. Uh, Art Breeze was his name. He's uh, He passed the uh, – couple years ago uh but very very thankful that I, I i had him because he just gave me great counsel he wasn't it was always let's go somewhere to play like you you need to go and play it's not about getting a great contract or or getting the most money not that i was getting a lot of money back then but it, it's about getting you in a situation where you can play mm. because he believed in me I'm very lucky that I had that, an agent that truly believed in me and truly cared about me. And and so he really helped us kind of navigate those times in that we didn't care where it was. It was just, let's go somewhere where the coach knows you and you can play. So after my WHL career ended, the end of that season, I had a couple of opportunities to go and play either in the American Hockey League or the ECHL. So I chose Cincinnati in in the american hockey league and went there and got some experience and and the reason why i went there is because they had a really thin roster they didn't have a lot of players so i got a chance to play i think it was seven games and got some real good ice time so great experience playing against men and then in that summer i signed uh an american hockey league echl two-way contract with uh, st john flames which was calgary's farm team and again, for the same reason, another, at the time, they didn't have a lot of players. They were kind of a thin organization. So Art and I thought that was the best chance for me to play and, and to get a chance to play in the American Hockey League. So I went and had a really good camp and just was real focused and, and then made, the, made St. John, the American League team, out of training camp. They had a couple guys that, I, that had NHL contracts that I had outplayed. And so interesting, the story was uh, Rick Vibe was their coach. I think he was first Maple Leaf to score 50 goals. Like, he was – I loved him as a coach, just honest guy and played the guys that were – that had earned their spot. So I was playing ahead. I think it was the first six games of the season. I was playing ahead of some guys that had NHL contracts, which is which is hard, right? Like, they've been invested in by, by the big club. He called me to his office. He said, we got to send you down to Johnstown in the ECHL, but we're trying to – to find these other guys an opportunity to play somewhere else. And if we do, you're coming right back up. And I think about it now, how many guys are told that line and not the teams aren't trying to do, it's just, it's hard to, mm -hmm. to find spots for players. There's a lot of good players out there. 
Well, it actually happened. Three weeks later, they were able to find those guys other spots, and I got called up and got to play the rest of the season in the American Hockey League and kind of played like a third-line checker role and so learn how to play pro hockey and, and check and kill penalties and do those things and got a ton of ice time. It was just a really positive season uh, for myself. And, and then after that year, <laughs> how things go, Everybody in the entire Calgary organization at St. John organization got fired. Everybody. Oh. <laughs> so at the end of the year, fire sale, about, pun intended. We're talking about signing me to an NHL contract. Everybody got fired. And so oh. started back from square one. And uh, the uh, July 1st, the Minnesota Wild called and offered me a two year contract. Uh, they were a new franchise, offered me a two year contract. And then so obviously was very excited about that. And the first year, so I was first ever wild development camp, first ever wild training camp. It's funny how things come around full circle, no right? Kidding. And uh, isn't that interesting? And then, uh, so the first year, the minor league team was in Cleveland, which was the last year of the IHL, our defunct IHL, we were the Cleveland Lumberjacks, and uh, played there that season for Todd McClellan. Obviously, we all know that name. All hockey fans know that name. Played for him. That After that season, the IHL folded. Next, uh, the, then they moved the affiliation to Houston, played in Houston for Todd. Once again, we had a great season that year, made it to the conference finals, lost to the Chicago Wolves, who ended up uh, winning the Calder Cup that year. So that's kind of how that played out. And then after that season, um, I think Minnesota just wanted to sign me to a uh, just an American Hockey League contract. So then I signed a two-year contract with the Chicago Blackhawks after that. And from there, 385 NHL games behind you. You brought it up a little bit when you were talking about, again, more steps in your great journey. Boy, I, I need a lot more time with you, Brett, to really properly pick your brain on some of this stuff. I'd love to. Um, but I, I, I hear this all the time when talking with players that have done the grind of minors and have broken through to the National Hockey League. Everyone finds a way to be something for a franchise. You find a niche because most people that get into the American Hockey League or the IHL in those days, they've scored at one point. But only the very select few can score in the National Hockey League. And to your credit, though, you had some seasons, 36, 40 points here and there. So it's not like you didn't score when you got up there. But what what do you think the role that it was that you found where you – was there an aha moment where you went, this is what I have to do to stay here, and then you chase that down? Yeah, I think for me, again, and I talked about it a bit, was just because of my journey, my game was so rounded. That I could literally play on any line and in any role because I'd done it. At some point in pro hockey, I had done it. So then my first year in Chicago, uh, or excuse me, my first year in, with Chicago in Norfolk, I was kind of the offensive guy. I had a really good year. I hadn't had that in pro yet. So I got to do that as well and add that to my what I'd done a mostly penalty killing kind of third line checking role up into that point, second unit power play, th- things like that. Um, so I, I was so prepared to do any role. So, and I think that's kind of what, and why I did end up sticking for those 385 games was because I wasn't good enough to be, to be a top six forward. I, you know, I wasn't big enough to kind of be, uh, and physical enough to be like a, you know, a, a real bruising player and a real, you know, play that role. But I was able to kind of 
fill in the gap and, and you know, plug those holes for, for a roster. And I can remember one of my coaches in the NHL, he, he, he said to me uh, uh, at my year end meeting, he said, what, what I love about you and kind of what your identity is now is you start the season on the fourth line and you end it on the second. And that's kind of what I did every year, my NHL career until my last year in Florida when I didn't do that and I was out of the league. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how quick it goes. But that's kind of why. And I think it was, and I also, one thing I, I say about my career is some people are ready to play in the NHL at 19. Some people are ready to play in the NHL at 21. I wasn't. I wasn't ready to play in the NHL until I was 24. And that's just the way it is. And I'm lucky enough that I was still on Chicago's radar to play because a lot of times by the time you're 24, mm-hmm. when you've started for a 20, they've kind of moved on to other people. I was lucky enough that that I um, that I was still on on their radar, and they still gave me uh, a chance. And the other thing that happened really well for me that kind of came around was I mentioned earlier how everybody in Calgary had got let go after my season in St. John. Well, the head coach in Calgary uh, at that time that had got let go was Brian Sutter. So now, a few years later, he's head coach in Chicago. So I come in Chicago. I have a great training camp my first year. I get sent down to Norfolk, still have a real seller. Our whole team had a great year. And we won our division. And then um, I come back again. I have a great training camp. When I do get my chance with the Blackhawks, Brian Sutter is the coach. And he's now known me or been familiar with me for a bunch of years. And he had a lot of trust in me. So right from my first game, I was taking diesel and face-offs and killing penalties. Right from my first game. There was no easing into it. So that was kind of, you said, an aha moment. I know that's not exactly what you're talking about. That was probably the bounce, the break that I needed. So I got a lot of ice time right from the start. And then you gain confidence. So you need an opportunity, and you got to have confidence while you are in that opportunity, which is a very tough thing to do when you're stepping into the National Hockey League. So I think Brian gave me that confidence when I did get the opportunity. Well, we've gone 45 minutes without me really allowing Joey to ask a question. All we've proven is I'm a gigantic (laughs) hockey nerd, and I can sit here and do this for another three hours. So we do want to get to the coaching side, and I know, Joey, you have more questions on the coaching side. To get us there, that last line you just said about getting the opportunity and taking the opportunity, have you you had that conversation with now being on the coaching side? Have you almost said those exact words to players being in the role that you're in now? Yeah, no, no question. Quit Lots of times. I think a one guy in Iowa, everyone's familiar with him, Jerry Mayhew, right? Like he, uh, I was with him his first year my, when I was my first year coaching and I had that exact conversation with him when he got his chance to get into the lineup was now you've got to take your opportunity. And obviously he did. And he's uh, carved himself out a very, very uh, career that he should be very proud of. And he's, and he's uh, still got lots of great things left to do. So that's just one example and, and not to take away again from from joe's question i, I don't know what he's going to ask but uh <laughs> i i use again i'm so thankful for my journeyman playing career because that helps me so much as a coach because i have honestly been through every single scenario that these players have been through i've been called up i've been sent down i've been healthy scratched i've been on the first line i've been on the fourth line um, obviously the only players I can't really, uh, say that I've been in their shoes are, are the superstars, right? I can't, uh, I, I don't know what, uh, you know, what, what it's like to be Kirill, obviously. So that's the only one, but most of the others I've been in that 
situation. And so that helps me so much. And, um, and, uh, very thankful for that. Yeah. I, so I, I've obviously got questions, but it's been, I just enjoy just sitting back and kind of listening to the whole thing. And obviously we've got a ton more that we can go through that we probably even scratched the surface. Well, I was going to say, so I'd love to delve into Europe, but let's, like, let's move into yeah, coaching. Like, I think I almost think coaching. Europe yeah. is like its own separate thing. Although I do have a, just a question about, I mean, you, yeah. over the course of your career, seven different leagues, five different countries, you know, aside from playing in the United States and in Canada, is there a spot that for you was just like your favorite place to play in when you were in Europe? Is there a spot that just kind of blew you away? Yeah. Well, very lucky everywhere I played. I loved uh, that includes North, everywhere. Johnstown was great. I mean, that's the real life Charlestown, right? Like that's yeah. the, the Chiefs. Yep. Like we played in that ring. I mean, I have great memories from the three weeks I, I, I spent there, but, um, in Europe was fantastic. Just really lucky. Loved my time in Sweden. Um, that was after my first year in the NHL. I had to play. I had to go somewhere and play. I couldn't. I couldn't not mm-hmm. play. So in such a good league, it just opened my eyes to how many great players there are out there that we've never heard about. Sometimes we get in this bubble in mm-hmm. Canada and in, in in the U.S. where we think everything is the NHL or the AHL or ECHL or college or junior. But there's so many great players that. And that was such a humbling experience that year in Sweden. Loved my time in Switzerland. Um, just Bern was fantastic. Win- winning the championship there, it's, it was a memory I'll have forever. Um, you know, they get 17,000 fans each game there in Bern. And 11,000 of them were standing and, and singing the entire game. Just incredible. And we won it at home in, in game seven. Great memories there. Lugano is probably the nicest place to play hockey outside of the National Hockey League. We had palm trees in our yard. You know, it's 20 minutes from Lake Como. It's just absolutely gorgeous and a great fan base and had so many. The the memories we made there, you know, the four years was just fantastic. And and um, and then ended up in Linz, Austria, which is another place that just kind of blew us away. Uh, kind of a diamond in the rough type of place. 5,000 fans, they pack into this building that you might, because of fire code, you might allow 2,000 here in, in, in the U.S. Just just jammed and, again, singing the entire time. And it's so many great memories. And they, the thing is, the friendships we made over there was just, um, you know, not, now the head coach of Linz, Phil Lucas, was our captain when I was there. And so it, it, we still talk once a week, uh, Phil and, and, and I. So just those connections and those experiences, especially for my family, our daughter, she was speaking Italian by the time we left Lugano fluently. Like she would go to school and just have no issues. And then our oldest son, Nixon, he was speaking German by the time we left Austria. So those experiences just shaped our family. And, and so to answer your question, all of them, we just had a fantastic experience everywhere we were. So you said the kids were fluent in the languages. Are you fluent in any of those languages or is it just something they picked up? And I can order in a restaurant. <laughs> and I can order a beer, and that's about it. The important, the I important can. things. The important yeah, things. The important. I always, my excuse was, I was always, oh, I was on, I was always on year-to-year contracts. So that was always the excuse. I, <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't going to learn the language. I didn't know I'd be back next year. That was my excuse. But no, it's the kids. They just, uh, it's unbelievable how quickly they can pick up stuff and how quickly they adapt. They're much more adaptable than than us parents are. That's for sure. 
those European games, have you seen videos of like the fanfare and yeah, the, oh yeah. like the the light shows? And I know in Germany they have they're like thundering watching, it's drums. Like watching, it's like watching soccer yeah. games. In, yeah. It's incredible. It's crazy. I got to go. I went to a game in Austria. Uh, actually, going over when I was younger to see a mutual friend of ours, Darby Hendrickson, who we don't need to talk about, yeah. right? Well, we can move yeah. right past him now. Um, <laughs> he was playing for Red Bull Salzburg, and we went to actually the league championship game. And it was nuts. It was incredible. I was a 15-year-old. I think they had – there was an entire section of, of topless people. That was in one corner. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, the Zamboni had a stripper pole on it too. It My was God. it was unlike anything. I, I'm 15 years old. Like yeah. It was just like sensory yeah. overload everywhere. It was incredible. I just and I mean, the game itself was incredible too, not just the fact that there were topless people yeah. in, the, in the section we, top right. We tried to do not – to that degree, we tried to do something similar in San Jose. We had, we brought like the there's a, there's a MLS soccer team out there, and we brought like their big fan support group. We tried to get them to come out with drums and everything, and have it like be this electric atmosphere. And people hated it. They couldn't stand it. They just wanted to watch the game and not have all the distractions yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So it definitely only works in in Europe. It's I don't think so that, different. That work here. It's so yeah. different. Yeah. Um, coaching wise. When you walked into it, what surprised you? What did you go, I didn't know that this would be a part of being an assistant coach at any level, let alone the American Hockey level where you started with the Iowa Wild? Yeah, no, I, the thing that um, surprised me the most is uh, how good the players are with, with feedback. And so I thought one of the biggest challenges of the job would be you're meeting with a player and you're showing a video on things they're not doing the way you'd like them to do it. And maybe they, you know, get defensive or wouldn't like that. And, and so, and I was blown away with, it was just the opposite. Like that was the best part of the job and, and, you know, that giving them constructive criticism, stuff like that, the players wanted that. So I, I think it's, um, it's really, a, it's a, a credit to the wild and the quality young men they bring in. Um, it's also just kind of the way, um, the newer generation, they're, they're so good at, again, accepting feedback. They're so good at going through information quickly and using it. I think it's, it's really interesting in, in dealing with that. And, you know, you think about the way, um, 20 somethings, you know, the way they communicate and the, the way they're just able to, to go on their phones and get so much information and decipher it and then learn how to use it or to communicate with each other is really fascinating. So that's what I really enjoy the most about the job is, again, I, I thought that it would be, you know, I'd come in to talk to a player and maybe, maybe diving in, into those stalls behind you guys, um, you know, trying to hide it's just the opposite. Like now I come into the locker room and players are always like, Hey, do you have something for me? Like what, what, what can I work on? Things like that. So that was a really, really pleasant surprise. Might've been because, Back when I played, all those stories we told, all those places I played, if the coach was coming to talk to me, that meant, you know, only two things. Only one of two things. One, you might be getting sat <laughs> out, or two, you're getting sent down. So maybe that's why uh, I, I I had a little different perspective. But So you were hiding in the stall. You were hiding in the stall. That guy. Literally <laughs> hiding. I knew there's only you talk to the coach at the end of the season, you're, you're in, and that was it. If you're talking to him any other time, it wasn't, wasn't for a good thing. So... Um, so that's probably why I had a different perspective on it. But that, that's been just something I, I just love about the job is that the daily working with the players and just trying to help them get better. And, and they're all so great at, um, at taking that feedback and, and using it. 
one thing that stands out to me about you, and this is not a knock to other assistant coaches that have been with the Iowa Wild, but I, I've heard it about you, and I know this about you. You were really entrenched in Des Moines, and you got out into the community. You got to know people. Uh, I believe you would help. You helped coach a few, maybe a, a couple of your son's teams at one point. Um, what was it about Des Moines that really hooked you? Because you've been to so many of these different places, yeah. towns. You, you know, yeah. you bring up Lugano and the beautiful uh, areas you've lived. Yet I know Des Moines holds a special place in your heart. What about Des Moines yeah. uh, hooked the the McLean family? Well, that's easy. The people, right? Uh, Iowa nice is a it's a real thing, and it's. Uh, and we can attest to it because you just said we've lived all, literally all over the world and the people in Des Moines and Iowa are just fantastic. And we just, right from day one, we just loved it and still love it. Try to get back there as much as we can. And we have so many great friends that we talk to all the time and come and visit us, which is, which is really, really nice. And, and um, yeah, so it, it was easy for us. We just, uh, we're obviously very, very social people. And I, we talked about it that I think, because we've lived so many places, our ability to adapt is quite strong. And so that's one thing when we, when we went to Europe too, we said as a family, like, we're not just going to stay in our apartment and not meet people and just be friends with the people from North America. We're going to make sure we make friendships with people from Switzerland or Austria. And we did that. So it, it didn't change. We went to Iowa and yeah, we just, we were very happy to stay in Iowa for a long time and call that home. Obviously, Minnesota called, and that was an opportunity we couldn't pass up, and we're, we're loving it here too. But um, the people in Des Moines are just fantastic. What, what we really loved about it was that uh, a few things people prioritize in Des Moines, and that is, uh, you know, obviously being, being good to each other and being friendly. They prioritize their schools. school system is just unbelievable, right? And they, and they really prioritize, you know, for us, youth sports and dance and things like that, activities. That's kind of people's priorities there. And that obviously aligns with our families as well. So it made it a very easy place for us to like. What were some spots when you spent your time in Des Moines? What are some spots that, you know, you'd go hit your favorite restaurants to go to? Was there a place if you needed to unwind after a road trip or a, a long yeah. homestay, you need to grab a drink or two? Is there a watering hole you got you frequented? Yeah. Like what were your what were your go-to spots? Yeah, well, favorite restaurant was actually uh, Wasabi. The sushi oh, place, yeah. and we loved it. The one out in uh, Waukee, because that's where we first lived when we were there. We just just loved that spot. So that was our, our favorite one. And like again, all the places we've lived, would you think that the best sushi, our favorite sushi spot, at all the places we lived, was in Waukee, Iowa? And I I man. tell people that all the time. I I tell that to my my family because I'm from Massachusetts, so East Coast, yeah. it's easy to get. Obviously, when you're on the coast, yeah. it's easy to get fresh seafood. Yeah. And I've told them there's some good sushi spots out here, and they laugh. They don't think it's possible, yeah. but it's it's yeah. fantastic. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of real yeah. good spots here. Yeah, so it's good. Uh, High Life Lounge, I mean, it is just absolutely love that place. So, um, yeah, I love the uh, shag carpet and the, the ponies. So um, The mini you know, Miller, Miller High Life. Yeah. yeah, so that's Go where to. we'd uh, – you know, we go to with our staff a lot. I remember when we uh, when we played, when we made the playoffs, and then when we uh, you know, when we won uh, our play, that's where we would go is, uh, as as a staff. Actually, I think the entire Iowa organization was there, which is some really cool memories we had at, at, at High Life. That yeah. moment, the, the playoffs. Could you feel what that meant to? the entire organization, the fans, yeah. everybody that had been there. Did you feel that even though you were still relatively new into the organization? Yeah, I believe it was, it was my second year. 
I believe it was year seven or six of the organization, I think, year six. And oh, yeah, like it meant it was so, and that was what was so cool about Highlight Lounge is that honestly, everyone from the organization came there. Every single person, ticketing, everything. It was that, and the people like, uh, like Tuna, like Joe, um, uh, that had been with it, with the organization, Lisa uh, mm-hmm. from ticketing, I believe that had been with the organization since day one, moving here. Like it meant so much to them, the work they'd put in and what they'd seen and what they'd built here. And the Iowa Wild just, there's a reason why that the Iowa Wild wins so many community awards uh, from the American Hockey League, because the work that that everyone has done in the community is just first class. And, and the Iowa Wild has such a great reputation in the city of Des Moines. And, and that's really a credit to all those people that maybe you don't see on the ice um and so that's what was so special about that was that sharing that with them um was really fun and then again when we a couple weeks later when we knocked out milwaukee in the first round and i still watch radio joe's call there um once in a while um it's just such a good call when when we ended up winning game five there in uh, milwaukee and yeah it was it was a it was a special moment to be a part of because it meant so much more than just the on ice product uh, they call that in, in my profession capturing the moment, and you nailed it. Uh, Joe nailed yeah. it in that moment in yeah. a big way. Uh, yeah. I only got one more question for you, Brett. Uh, do you want to get to anything else before we wrap with Mr. McLean? My last one would have been the, the typical question we usually lead off with. Oh, we question. totally forgot you just about blew that. right past, past that. So that would be my <sighs> only one, but Ooh. if you want to yeah, take it. Yeah, great point. No, no, no. Yeah, go for it. So normally how we kick things off in this podcast God, when it. people are on top of things. Yeah, when I'm not. It's, uh, so it's the Ride on the Bus podcast. So the whole point is we, like we have, we want to have conversations if you're sitting next to someone on the bus, right? So do you have any good bus stories or bus etiquette that you might be able to share with, with the group, with the listeners, or even um, now it's more of a, are there any charter etiquette uh, kind of scenarios that you've got for everybody? Yeah, I spent a lot of time on the bus, that's for sure. Um, If I could think of just one. um, Yeah, actually, I I got a good one. Not etiquette, but, and I I don't mind. I'm going to carve it. I'm going to carve someone here, which will will be fun. And obviously, he's uh, done very well for himself. So we can take him down a notch. Derek Malone, head coach of the Detroit Red Wings. Um, obviously congrats to him, a real good friend. We talked yesterday. He's, uh, very much deserving of where he is. It's a, it's a testament to being good at what you do and being good to people. And he, he's won two Stanley Cups now and earned his way a NHL head coaching job. And I wish him all the best, but I think it was my first year. Yeah, it must've been my first year. Cause that was the only, uh, year that I, I coached with him was, um, he had hurt his knee in the summer. Yeah, he'd blown his ACL, I think, in the summer and had surgery. And it was three, four months after. And he's still just nursing it and he's icing it all the time. And we're on the bus and and uh, I'm not sure where it's coming from. And and the the sleeper bus has three bunks on each side for the Iowa Wild. Ben, I know you've been on it. You're familiar with it. So you always put all the, on the top bunk, you put all of the... Um, pillows, blankets, bags, stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then the middle bunk kind of folds down almost like a futon. And then you, you kind of sit on almost like you have a, a 
couch. So you sit there and usually there's two or three across sitting there. So I think it was Derek and I sitting on the one that were just two of us there. And so bus is rattling around and I think we're working on our computers and, and then something falls off the top bunk and hits Derek in the knee and he squeals. Like I'm talking squeals, ah, like, like, like he was dying, you know, and we look on the ground, it was a pillow. It was a pillow. <laughs> it hit him in the knee and he's, so you can ask Tuna, our old equipment manager is now, you can ask Joe, you can ask Keith Paulson. This is a legendary story about Newsy in that he got hit in the knee with a pillow and he squealed pretty loud. So that's a that's a story for me. I love. Oh, that is a fantastic story, <laughs> and no better way to button the podcast yeah. than with that. Uh, that's definitely going to be one of our 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 pre-show highlights we put out before this podcast goes would, live. That's I a would think so. that's, that's a, a that's one. a bang on story. Uh Mac, this has been just outstanding. You as I knew you would be, uh some fantastic stories and just some great back and forth banter. Thanks so much for coming on and obviously uh like I said we could have talked Europe, we could have talked Minnesota Wild, we could have obviously delved more into the Iowa Wild, but um just thanks so much and best of luck this season. Obviously we'll, we'll be watching very diligently down here in Des Moines. Thanks, guys. Let's do it again sometime. A major thanks to Brett McLean as well as Aaron Sickman, PR guy for the Minnesota Wild, for lining that up for us. Uh, we don't need to say anything more about it. Award-winning PR guy, That's too. true. Um, multiple multiple times. times, yep. Um, also, we should shout out a congratulations to Megan Kogut since we're talking about the PR side. Uh, she'll be going uh, to Philadelphia to work in another award-winning uh, PR department in Philadelphia. So um congratulations to her but yes nice shout out to sicky and, and megan there yeah. um and obviously brett was fantastic as we talked about at the beginning of the show we don't need to uh to, to keep knocking down that door now we can just move on but thanks again to brett and a great chat with brett uh tenure tidbit time and yep. you're giving us three this week yeah take it away 10-year tidbits presented by explore minnesota wineries breweries distilleries and cideries are all cropping up all over the state. You're invited to come and taste the delicious results. Whether you're looking to follow the Southern Minnesota Beer Trail or want to discover a new winery up north, Min Sips Passport lets you... Uh, I got to start that over. I kind of want to leave this in. I got to no. start that over. <laughs> I feel like I can't read. We can leave this in. I feel like I can't read. I'm going to try to... I'm going to start this over from the top. This was... I. In my no head, ed, no edit, Marquise. No, no edit. In, in my head, I was going somewhere with it, <clears throat> and and it just you were trying to ad lib a little bit. Yeah, I was. I yeah. was. I was trying to have some fun. Spice with Spice it. it up. I wanted this one. Spice it up like a nice spiced yeah. cider at one of those cideries. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, let's try this again. Wineries, breweries, distilleries, and cideries are cropping up all over the state, and you're invited to come taste the delicious results. Whether you're looking to follow the Southern Minnesota Beer Trail or want to discover a new winery up north, let the Min Sips Passport give you inspiration to quench your thirst. Visit exploreminnesota.com slash MNSips for more information. Bravo. I nailed that one. Bravo. That was you easy. Did. Second you time's did. a charm. Everybody's better the second time around. It's like when you're playing golf and you take those provisional you know, breakfast ball shots. Golf is such an easy sport when you hit it the second time. Or when you miss your putt and then you pull it back and then you make yeah, it every yeah. time. It's, it's almost a guarantee you're going to make it. Golf's on the, the easiest try. sport <laughs> when you play it. You know, when you when you take two shots. So 
I'm looking at it, Minsip's passport. Yeah, that would be that's a little bit of a tongue twister. You know what got and it's just it's just it's pathetic, but what nobody can see this. Ben can see it. <laughs> what got me is the the dash threw me off on inspiration. And just because I was in such a I was in such a rhythm and I was like, wait. And then I lost my... It did go off the rails fast. You were Really, you were sounding really yeah. good. It was yeah. good. And then, yeah, I can, I can see that, the dash. Let's the dash give me more off. ad reads. Let's do it. All right. This is fun. Okay. I enjoyed it. All right. Asking, well, you, anyways, asking you shall receive. Anyways. Yes, what is the tidbit? Tidbits. I've actually got two. Okay. We only thought we had one. I got two because I thought of one as I, I was, don't know what the second one is. I also thought this of one as I was reading, which probably didn't help. But uh, <laughs> all right. So the first one... Um, for our season ticket holders and our fans, people who know our, our front office staff pretty well, uh, we will have a new community coordinator joining us uh, as of today when you hear this on uh, the day after you know, the long Labor Day weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Picardi will be joining us. He actually comes down from Minnesota, spend some time with the Wild up there. So someone who's familiar with the organization, but we're very excited to to get him, uh, get him here and get him up and running because Obviously, community is such a huge part of our organization, top to bottom, but really here in Iowa. Brett McLean know. talked about it. Yeah, it's it's yeah, huge. So Everybody knows. Um, we're excited to get him up to speed, get him involved with everybody, and, and, and get him face-to-face -face with a lot of people um, you know, throughout the course of the year and years to come. So very excited about that. The second tidbit, um, and I can't give too much information, mm. uh, but obviously we've already rolled out our promo schedule. There's probably going to be another small promo schedule rollout. Uh, we got a couple additional oh. themes, a couple updates that we're going to want to uh, send out and roll out. Uh, don't know exactly when that's happening, but uh, that uh, there's probably some some exciting ones for people that I think they're going to enjoy. So that's something to keep an eye out for in the coming weeks. Uh, and I've actually got a third. Because by the time you hear this, it's gonna be a it's gonna be an official thing. <laughs> we have a game change. Yes. For January twenty first, that game was originally supposed to be played at twelve o'clock. It is now being played at six o'clock. So it gives you some more time to enjoy your afternoon, and then come on out and enjoy the wild game that night. It so, allows me more time to get ready for the game. To prep. So yep. I'd much After rather playing the night before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd yeah. much rather go from having the game at noon and changing it to six than vice versa. Then oh, oh yeah. it was at six, and now all of a sudden we're playing at noon. Yep. Um, the the people behind the scenes will appreciate that. Um, Look at that magic. We just went from having well, we only got one tidbit to now having three. Voila. And, come on. Is Des Moines, Iowa Mega Bowl night going to be a thing on that additional <laughs> layout? I'm still going to keep throwing it your way, I Jackie don't, Moon. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be uh, Jackie Moon night, but it is still going to be that beach theme night. Ma -ma -ma merger. Ma -ma 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 merger. That, merger. Yeah. Jackie Moon. That uh, NBA. Yeah, that, 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 that let's get tropical night. I'm not night. going to it's let just it die. A, just a placeholder name for what you know what our ideas are. We're still waiting on a couple things on that. I'm hoping that that game's included in the, this next rollout. Um, but, yeah, I, I still think you should dress it. My goal is to bring it up enough on the podcast between now and the date that a few people show up in, like, Flint Tropics gear. Yeah, and you know what's going to help And get confused by it. I'm submarining the marketing team on this attempt, but I'm really – it's one of those things, if I say it enough – Put it out into the world. It'll maybe come it'll come fruition. true. <laughs> yeah, it's and what's what's probably going to help your cause too is our new media relations manager, Alec Lesner. He is a huge semi-pro fan. Who he's quoting it upstairs in our marketing good. office quite a bit. So I knew I liked he's him. He's right just kind of subliminally I knew he was a good helping hire. 
throw that our way. So yeah, smart guy. Yep. Media department, same length, same wavelength. Yep. Yep. That's good. Uh, so the end of summer, sadly, but also it means really the beginning of hockey season yep. being here, which for us is very exciting. Uh, Labor Day is. Uh, I don't know if it's the official end of summer, but it's not. To me, it feels like. Yeah. Okay, we've moved into fall now. Granted, it'll still be a billion degrees in Des Moines in mm -hmm. September, and I'll want to go run as close to a body of water as I possibly can every time I leave the front door of my house, which yeah. is one of my, really my only qualms with Des Moines is the heat here in the summer, but it does play off in the winter compared to Minnesota where the winters are much more temperate here than they are in Minnesota. Not that I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes talking about weather, yeah. but we did want to talk just some highlights from the summer finish up our podcast here a little run through some of our our favorite memories of the summer that was 2022 yeah and it's yeah it's it's i think the official end of summer is like september 21st or something although we had a big me Alex, seems so late and uh john savoya one of our corporate uh you know partnership someone on the corporate partnership can't get the marbles out of my mouth Ooh. i can't talk it, it is what it is but john savoya me and alec lesson were having this conversation yesterday and john was like oh yeah it's officially you know the end of summer and me and alec were like no it's not till september 21st he's like yeah well meteor meteorologically or meteorology meteorologists yeah no but like yeah meteorologically, meteorologically yeah that's what i, was, I don't know if is that's that what a I word said? joey i don't know that's what he said i don't think it's a word either but he's like, yeah, that's like in that way, it's it's the end of summer because you know it starts to get a little bit cooler. And me and Alec both looked at each other. We we're like, it's gonna be like ninety degrees yeah, all weekend. It's about to cooler. spike again. So, um, but yeah, not not really the the official end of summer, but for all intents and purposes, it it, it basically is because after Labor Day, you're right into rookie camps and training camp, and then before you know it, it's October fourteenth, and we're dropping the puck on our tenth season. So, um, but yeah, and uh, looking back on a summer. I think for me, your first full summer being able to be here in Des Moines, so being able to just experience what that's been like. Um, and my biggest takeaway is really just taking the time to truly decompress. I feel like it was the first first time in coming up on 10 years working in sports where I've had an off-season where I can actually treat it like an off-season. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a credit to um, you know having a, an awesome support team in the marketing department and being able to, to really – not have to be worried about getting everything done and doing everything by myself, having the, the help you to can do delegate that. a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But it, so that, that's been a big thing, but, um, you know, I've gotten, had some time to be able to travel and do some things. And, um, you know, I'm at that early thirties age where everybody's, my friends are all getting married. So uh, I got a couple of friends who got married a couple of weeks ago. Um, I got another wedding at the end of the month that I'm actually officiating, which I'm really excited about, um, back out in California. So, um, just kind of being able to share those big moments with, with some of your close friends is, is always an, a, an exciting thing to do. Um, and then this coming weekend, I'm actually heading out to Chicago. Real quick trip. going to go to a Cubs game, see my cousin, come back, and I'll be planted firmly on my couch for the start of football, NFL football. On the Vikings-Packers on Sunday. Patriots-Dolphins can't beat it. I feel much better about your Patriots than I do about my Vikings. Do you? I wouldn't. I think the Patriots are going to struggle. It's just more of a lifetime of despair being a Vikings fan yeah, that you just come into the season and you just. I don't know. It's our fantasy just football just, drafts yeah. this past week. That's been a whole thing. And just, yeah, I haven't too many fantasy football leagues.
Can you give me a small sample size of what your preparation towards being an officiant at a wedding looks like? How are you preparing for that? Yeah, that's actually been that's a that's a lot of fun. So I, I've I've done it once before. I did my cousin's wedding last year. I didn't. I knew you were doing this one. I didn't know you'd done it before. Yeah. So last year, you're seasoned. Yeah. So I did my cousin's wedding, um, and honestly, I, I didn't really know what to like what to do. Um, Hi, I'm Joey. I didn't know how it and worked. These two right here are getting married. Yeah, like I didn't know how it worked. Hi. I had to, you have to get ordained, right? So yeah. I, like, everybody always jokes, oh, you can just get ordained online. You can, um, and that's <laughs> what I did. I went to the Universal Life Church, and which is a, uh, I think it's just it's a pretty common like online ordination website. Um, so I went on and and filled everything out. Uh, I forget how much it cost, but. You basically answer a couple questions, click a couple buttons, and, and they give you everything you need. Um, and it's pretty much in, good for, like, any state. Each state has their own wedding laws and things like that, so you just got to kind of go through and see what those are. So I did one – the one I did last year was North Carolina. The one I'm doing in a couple weeks is California. So a couple different rules here and there. Make sure you get all the right paperwork if the county needs it. Um, once you have all that, it's then it's the – it's the planning side of things and, and how it's going to work. So how I do it, it doesn't it may not be how everybody does it, but obviously it's it's not my show. It's the people getting married. It's their show. It's well what, done. It's, it's, it's what they want um, and, and how they want it to work. So I set I try to set up like a, a sit down and get together or something. Obviously I'm doing it over Zoom because I'm not in North Carolina or, uh, or California, but set up a uh, – you know, a meeting with them to kind of talk about what their expectations are, how long do you want it to be, what are the things you absolutely want to have, what do you not want to have, like, give me all that stuff. And then with that, I'll start piecing together um, what that the script is going to look like, I guess, because I'm sitting up there with a, a book reading it all, um, which was, when I did my cousin's wedding, it was like, I got no problem getting up and talking in front of people. I mean, you saw it at the state fair. Not not a fear of mine. I public speaking, no no issue. But standing up there with the book in front of like family, people I know, I should be comfortable with, is shaking. Really? Nonstop. Yeah, because I and I don't know why. I think it was just because like it's such an it's such like a an important thing. Yeah, it's huge. Like, you can't screw mm-hmm. that up, and you don't want to <laughs> screw up their special day. So like that that was like super nerve wracking. Um, I get emotional with weddings too. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's an it's an well, emotional I thing. Like a I, child of mine. I, I don't like ball, but like I get teary eyed and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So I remember they both, uh, my cousin, his wife, they, or his now wife, they both walk down the aisle. They're standing up there, and she's crying. He's tearing up. I'm tearing up. <laughs> and before and before we even started, I kind of just looked at them both. I was like, "All right, we're gonna take a deep breath, right?" I was like, "Get it together, here, people. Come on, take a deep breath." And I was like, oh, "All right." It definitely wasn't just for me, like it was for you guys more importantly. But um, so yeah, so I have that initial meeting, write the the whole script down, and then meet with them again, kind of run through a bulk of the script. Um, I like to give her give the bride and groom homework as I'm writing it. It's just like, hey, my thing is like, tell me, um, you know, send them a couple questions. Like, tell me what love means to you, what marriage means to you what's been important in the relationship, blah, 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 and get those answers from each of them. So that way, when I'm doing their, mm-hmm. the ceremony, I can talk about to what, know them, what yeah. they each told yep. me. Like, I mean, I know them, but like what they each told me about their relationship. So it's that little personal touch that I like to include too. Um, 
But yeah, because it's I mean, pretty like exhaustive. Said, you're you've come prepared. But hey, it's yeah. it's. I mean, we're, Again. we're talking like twenty minutes, so it ha- it does happen quick. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's it's fun, exciting, and and like I said, it's it's about them. As long as they are happy with with what the ceremony looks like, that's great. And you know, I it's not about me. I do like to have fun with it, and you know, it's not it's not a roast. I'm not up there to make it a roast. You know what I mean? But I'm gonna I'm gonna make some jokes here and there and have some fun with it. But um, cause it's as much as it is for them. It's their ceremony. I've been to weddings where you're sitting in the crowd and you're like yeah, dozing off and falling asleep and you don't want Twiddling that. Your so, fingers. um, well, if, yeah. if, if, if you're listening and you are engaged, soon to be engaged, don't like your local pastor. I'm available. Here he is. Just reach out and we can, we can chat. We can have a chat. Everybody jokes my, my, after my cousin's wedding, my uncle and and the bride's father were like, "Oh, you should just start like a side business." And side hustle. And I was hey, like, "People in sports have side hustles." That's you know, a real I was like, thing. "I was like, yeah, I don't know." I was like, "I, I kind of just like doing it for you know, like people I know and family and stuff like that." And then when I got this other wedding in September, everybody's like, "No, seriously, like you should just do this for people. Like offer it up if people are around and 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 are looking for someone." So yeah, I don't know. If you want me to officiate your wedding? Uh, let me know, I guess. Joey Goldstein, for your golden day. Yeah. There you go. There you go. There's your tagline. Yep, perfect. I'm actually in my, it's funny, <laughs> I'm, in my, uh, I'm in my cousin's phone as the reverend. Ah, yes. <laughs> certainly Rever- not, but. Reverend Goldstein. Certainly not a reverend, but um, <laughs> that's how I, I'm listed in his phone, which is pretty funny. So, that's yeah, I gr- guess that's, 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 that's summer. That's a great little nugget. That's, that's a great little nugget. Very nice. Yeah, how about you? Um... I, our trip, our trip to Florida in August, which doesn't sound that nice because I've heard August or Florida hot, in August hot, is hot, but it's, it's hot and humid here, yeah. so it's like, what's the difference? I didn't, it didn't feel it's, any is it more, more miserable is there. It more humid? I feel like it. Yeah, should be. It's definitely yeah. More um, but it was, it didn't feel like the biggest jump that I thought it was going to be. Um, so we did, we did West Palm Beach for a day and a half just because we got in. One of the days was travel, and then we did a full day there, and the next two days we did Disney after that my family's huge into Disney so we went into that uh it was a great trip um swam in the ocean which was nice I haven't done that in a long time um, which makes sense because you yep. now live in Iowa and no, you're from Minnesota so no, not never really an lived option. in a, never lived on the coast <laughs> not really an option no um, ocean's overrated it was nice though I tell you like it you, you forget how I just, it was peaceful. I think our yeah. our jobs, especially during the season, are so frenetic and straining and stressful, which, to your point, the payoff is your off-seasons. If you get to the point where you've worked long enough or risen to a certain level, you can – and everybody decelerates to some extent, but I you know, I can agree with you on that. I got to decelerate a little bit this summer. Yeah. You have to do it. Or, yeah. or in, in season, you you'll, 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 you'll burn out. That's how I see a lot of people end up leaving sports is because they don't get that time to just really decompress, mm-hmm. and it's – it it can be tough. Yeah. yeah. So the ocean part of that trip was was great. Just sitting there and you know we just sat there for five hours I yeah. think and you go swim for thirty minutes you come back you fall asleep See, you I'm get like, back up I really beach, like I'm that. I'm so like I don't know I'm much I'm one of those I'd rather be at the pool than be at the beach. I don't like being all sandy. I think that's yeah. Just they, an yeah. Thing. I think I still I found also, some sand I'm in my good shorts. With, like, I'm actually like I'm good with the ocean for like the first like I don't know five six feet but like. I've actually, low-key is a, is a fear of mine, is not being able to, like, see the, like, the bottom of a body of water, like, an ocean or, like, that trips me out so much. I think everybody's sort of like that, because you're I like, think it's what's called, below you, especially in the ocean, in the lake, I'm a little about better. Thinking it now is, like, it, it feels like I got, like, spiders crawling out my back. 
It, I think it's called thalassophobia or something like that. Look at you. It's a legitimate thing. Yeah. Like Look if I like you. if you see like if you if I like see pictures of like people like looking down the ocean that tri- trips me out. Have you so do you does Jaws just terrify you? You can't watch that movie. That's oh, like I can the watch movies about. I that. can watch the movies like all that kind of stuff. It's just like seeing that. Can you, can you like, be on a boat? Have you ever in seen the ocean? It? Yeah. You can't be in the water. I don't want to be in the water. Yeah. I don't that that feeling of like things swimming beneath me and not knowing what's underneath. That's me. That's eerie. I would agree with that. And like I love being on the lake. I love like tubing and you know boating mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff i'll jump out some of the lake but like that kind of creeps me the out minute a you bit flip too. off the tube you freak out and try to swim back yeah the boat it's almost it's like it's like uh <laughs> what do they say it's like watching a duck right a duck on the surface they're calm cool and collected and underneath it's just churning my, my feet are just constantly <laughs> going because i don't i don't know it's just yeah, yeah you're trying you're uh, not only are you trying to propel yourself in the water but you're also trying to ward off anything that might be yeah. having a look at your feet i don't know what's there a lock nest monsters it could be a real thing i don't know yeah it's just yeah that little things like that like me out like there's that one there's one picture i always see it every once in a while it pops up on like you know the internet or whatever and it's someone's like sitting on like on a ledge in the ocean and their feet are just dangling and it's just like an endless pit no thank you no thanks all right yeah well we, what was it tesselophobia thalassophobia thalassophobia i think there's your great fact of the day uh thanks to the riding the bus guys uh thalassophobia I feel like we almost maybe need to make this a... Philosophobia, intense phobia, fear of large bodies of water, which isn't the case, but... Uh, I'm, still, I'm still... It's something like I'm that. I'm still saying, well done. I mean, you've, you've taught yeah. people a little bit. Fear of deep water. Yeah, that's Google, kind of what Google will help it you is, it. but it isn't like I'm, like, I'm not like afraid of the ocean, but it's just that the idea of not knowing what's underneath you, that I don't like. Yeah. Okay. We've really, really gone on a tangent yeah. here. I think let's bring it back <laughs> on the rails uh, and let's get us to the end uh, of the podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. I do have another guest lined up. Uh, as we've learned to do, we don't promo these guests in case Murphy decides to show up again Correct. and make everything go wrong. Uh, but we're excited about that next guest for sure. We are also getting to a point, uh, and I th- this next guest is was probably going to be our last one on a weekly schedule. Yeah. We're going to get to a point where we're no longer doing weekly episodes just with the season starting. Mm-hmm. Ben obviously traveling all the time. Um, it's just going to be very hard to nail down a consistent schedule. We're both here. Um, it's it's not ideal when one or both people, everybody's over Zoom. Like, we don't want that. I think this is a more fun situation for everybody. Mm-hmm. So uh we'll probably end up going to definitely one episode per month that's the goal probably starting like after we have our next episode we'll probably take a break for a little bit through camp we'll probably do one in october and we'll you know we'll do one mm-hmm. per month but that doesn't mean there can't be multiple like based on the schedule december is very uh it's very home game heavy january is very home game heavy so if there if time allows for us to be able to do multiple episodes we will um, but we just don't want to make that promise and guarantee knowing that it may not be doable. Yeah, and and a lot of the thought process behind that too is we've stayed away from, if you want to call them lower-hanging fruit in the off-season, uh, just because it's a little easier on our schedules, easier on Brett McLean's schedule, yeah. uh, other people, Bill Guerin's schedule, yeah. Matt Boldy's schedule, to, to lasso in some of these 
uh, higher ranking officers, if yeah. you will. So, but in, people like Mike Murray, we want to have Shaky Kraus on here. Yeah, there, I mean, there, that's some what players I was that are it's here. The, the guys. This is going to be a little bit more of the trajectory we might take. Not that we might not throw an alumni in there here or there when we can when we can wrangle them in, but the direction that we think we are going to take moving forward once we get done with this next episode is to try to bring in a little more in house and probably have more people sitting to our left here yeah. as opposed to just doing it over Zoom as much. Yeah, we'll have we'll have those people here and. Mm -hmm. and I think we've got, I mean, we know Shakey's going to have boatloads of stories. We've talked a little bit with Andrew Kayser, who... But look, pause on Shakey once. I think we, we, we need to bring up the way that he has been trying to get on the show. Because I thought the his, yeah. yes right this is how let's end it with with this because yeah. I know he listens so he'll hopefully catch this and then come of course be like oh, what are you talking about but yeah. this this was a really interesting way that he's been trying to elbow his way in as a guest on the show yeah he it he I don't think Shakey's come to either of us directly no to ask about being on the show no he might he he's here today he so could like, be hearing there's a, a good he chance could be behind he comes the door and pops yeah. in and and that'd be that'd be amazing <laughs> if he did that uh, but yeah so he he. He he hasn't said anything to either of us directly, and obviously we tweet clips and mm -hmm. everything, and it all goes out on social. Um, and he's not responding to those either directly. Uh, he what I caught him doing was responding to Crash responding to the clips, uh, saying that he wanted to be a guest. So just an interesting way to go about it. Um, he thought Crash was his in route, like. I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet at crashes. Yeah. Not our. He's got account. my cell phone number. He's got not, my email. He tweets at crashes specific Twitter account. Yeah, it was pretty. Waiting funny. for my invite it. too, or something. He was texting yeah. that. I was like, yeah, this I'm is gold. For my invite so too. Yeah, it was that good. may be how yeah. we lead his episode yeah. when we have him on. Yeah, we'll get um, shaky on Andrew Kayser, another one who spent some time over in the cage. Yeah, uh, he's got some great stories. He's probably someone who, if we are ever in a pinch and need somebody. We mm -hmm. can come on. He could tell us a story and take an hour to tell it. I'm sure. Yeah. And then obviously Mike Murray, Tim Army, those will be guys. A lot of we players want to get as well. To. Yeah, so. for sure. So that that's a little bit of where we're headed. Again, one more episode on the weekly basis next week. Uh, Joey, thank you. Uh, a big thanks to Marquise Jones as well. Also to Jeremy Core and Executive Podcast Solutions for making this podcast listenable. And of course, uh, you, the fans, for watching and listening. And last but certainly not least, Brett McLean uh, for giving us a great amount of time and some great stories. That has been episode 11 of Riding the Bus, the official I Am a Wild podcast presented by Explore Minnesota. Partner, two hogs for the win.